Hi, everyone. Welcome to Fire the Canon, the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. I am your host, Jackie. I'm your other host, Rachel. And I'm Theo, the producer. And today we have with us a very special guest who is Dr. Lottie Reinbold, a professor of medieval literature at a college, which shall go unnamed for now. Let's say it's in the UK. (laughs) In the UK. I think they'll notice when they hear us speak. Hi, Lottie. (laughs) Hi, thank you for having me. We're so excited for you to be here. Our current, I guess, top-ranked guest is a friend of yours. So if anyone has listened to any episodes with Jacob, he said, oh, I've got a friend who does this. Let's get her on the pod. We don't actually have a ranking of all of our guests. Yeah, yeah, we definitely don't. I mean, number of times he's been on. Oh, okay. No one would have guessed that. (laughs) He's he's got two points on the scoreboard Mm -hmm. compared to the other one-pointers. I I heard he was a big name in uh, the podcast sphere. Um, So how how do you know each other? Uh, We went to college together. Um, So it was quite funny. I was uh, listening to your episode with Jacob about Gawain and there was a weird kind of Oh, yeah, I remember we studied that together. We were in the same class. (laughs) We went to college together just up the road from here. And then uh, I just stayed. (laughs) Awesome. I mean, I'm guessing you got a better grade than he did on the... I would not like to comment. (laughs) But yes, we're also going to need over time to get everybody else who is in your class. So yeah, we need to hear from absolutely everyone. That seems very doable. Oh, okay. (laughs) We all play uh, D&D together. The whole class? Well, the the groups are very small here, so it was only five of us. Oh. We could totally get your whole class on the podcast. (laughs) Actually, yeah, that was totally a joke, but now that I see how possible it is, it's making me want to do it. (laughs) This could really happen. Well, Jacob actually ran a Gawain and the Green Knight-themed campaign for us. What? He told us that oh, he did? in a Twitter group that we're all in together, oh. including Theo, <laughs> that he never reads. I see. He begged us to let him in, and he never reads it. <laughs> so, Rachel, do you, um, I don't know, do you have a structure you want this to go in? Yeah, so I was thinking, since we just finished reading and talking about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, we could kind of start there. When I spoke with our guests over Twitter, I basically said, we just want to hear any weird stuff. Any weird, interesting stuff that you want to talk about. <laughs> so if you've got anything that you feel like, I mean, you heard the Jacob episode, but if you feel like we've missed out on anything, please let's let everyone know. We'd like this to be a, maybe a more informative episode than usual. Yeah. And she pulls out her checklist of like, they missed this, they missed this. <laughs> well, look, I was super nervous. So I spent a little time this morning preparing. So yeah, I'm in my oh, office wow. at work and I do have a copy of the poem and like various books around oh. me. And I was like, this is not cool. <laughs> oh, I promise you do not need to be nervous. We are not smart people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how much do you know about the manuscript? Very little. I know it was originally very tiny, and then it was lost for a long time. Because it was so small. Yeah. They just lost it. <laughs> Maybe. Would you tell us about it? Yeah, it's it's very interesting. So if you go to the British Library in London, it's if you're ever sort of waiting for a train at King's Cross and you're delayed, uh, it's right next to the train station, and they have it on permanent display, the manuscript, in like a treasures exhibition. So you can just pop in and see it. And as you say, it is really, really tiny. Wow. And one of the interesting things about it is that 
it was uh, the survivor of a fire. Just like the Beowulf manuscript, right? Well, they were in the same, exactly, the same library, <gasps> the Cotton Library, oh. at a house called Ashburnham House, which feels like, if I wasn't, I, I wouldn't keep priceless manuscripts at a house with fire in the name. They should have called it like a icy cold water house. Very cool book live forever house. Yeah, never on yeah. fire house. Robert Cotton, who, yeah. whose library it was, you might have noticed that like the Beowulf manuscript and the Gawain manuscript, they have names of Roman emperors in their manuscript mm. names. The Gawain one is Cotton Nero, and he organized mm-hmm. his library by having busts of Roman emperors. Um, and then he'd oh. kind of file the books underneath it. And that's kind of survived wow. today. So if you're ever looking up medieval manuscripts and you see a Roman emperor in the name, that shows you it's come from Robert Cotton's library. Oh my gosh, wow. I had no idea. Kind of a cool fact, but uh, the manuscript is famously terribly illustrated. <laughs> How embarrassing. <laughs> Do you think the poet himself tried to draw things and they were just like, stick to what you know? Well, this is, it's actually, it's super interesting because for a long time, people basically thought that was what it was. You know, when medieval manuscripts manuscripts were made, someone would do the copying and then often someone would kind of come along and then put the images in and somebody else might do the colours and the illumination. So there's a manuscript here in um, one of the college libraries where there's all these spaces for like planned pictures and they never went in. So there's all these like blank spaces. It's really tragic because there's this one beautiful frontispiece and it was going to be the most like luxe and beautiful manuscript and then it just just never happened. Do you, when you see those blank pictures, spaces do you ever get the urge like when someone sees a tide pod and they're like i know i shouldn't eat this but i want to do you see the blank space and you're like i would ruin this but i really want to just like put something in there yeah <laughs> but also a lot of my research is on kind of victorian medievalism and they were like fine i will do this you know i will fill in those gaps i will cut things out i mean i i guess that makes me feel better about all of the things that i start and don't finish because i always think of that sort of as a modern problem you know like oh we're just so busy and so distractible by all our screens and those guys had nothing to distract them cows still sheep, couldn't finish the pictures bees sickness nothing yeah that's right <laughs> famine yeah <laughs> <laughs> Life was so easy back then. Uh, there is one a chronicle of a monastery where all the monks got the plague. And Ooh. it's really, maybe you've heard about it. It's, it's so this one monk is like left keeping this chronicle. So a kind of record of <gasps> events. And then he gets the plague and he's like, he dies like halfway through his sentence. <gasps> Minds of Moria, Jackie. Was his sentence, I'm about to. Exactly, yeah, it was really <laughs> pretty much that. Well, now I take back what I said because I feel worse now. Like if I were close to death, I would not be writing. In fact, I could have the tiniest, most minute thing wrong with me and I'd be like, I can't write. <laughs> no, I feel like that very strongly. And to be fair, medieval monks do as well. They get to the end of copying things and they write like, oh, thank God this is finished. You know, this is so boring. I hate doing this or <laughs> curse the man who wrote this <laughs> yeah it's pretty it's pretty cool Med- medieval manuscripts are more imperfect I think than people think and kind of more interesting and show more evidence of human interaction and the people who wrote them than you might otherwise assume so there's a guy on Twitter called Eric uh, Quackle and he uh, sometimes posts about interesting things he finds on manuscripts like cats which have uh, walked across the page and like left inky oh. footprints or pissed on the manuscript. Oh no. <laughs> not not as cute. <laughs> oh, I thought you were saying it was a drawing of a cat walking across the page, but no. Oh. No, no. Monastery oh. cats uh, getting into trouble. That's one thing that never changes. 
But yeah, the Gawain manuscript is for a lot of people a huge disappointment because the poems in it, uh, the poems of the Pearl Manuscript are so kind of rich and interesting and vibrant and filmic and kind of unlike anything else in medieval literature. And then the pictures are so bad. Bad in, because I know a lot of medieval... paintings and drawings represent animals in ways that are very strange. Is it worse than that? Like, what is bad about them? It's not even bad in a fun way. They're just poorly executed. Oh, okay. That sounds fun to me. So it's not like some weird wadwos or something. It's just... That's fascinating. I want to look up the pictures now. It's also, it's kind of interesting because I think for a long time, critics thought they had just been done by somebody who hadn't or couldn't read the poems because the kind Mm -hmm. of the figures... Actually, not so much in Gawain, but particularly in another poem in the same manuscript, Pearl. The pictures kind of look nothing like what the poem describes. Mm. So the dreamer in Pearl is in this kind of icy heaven winter landscape. And the pictures are very kind of green and verdant. Whoa. Everyone was just like, okay, well, they've been badly painted or kind of badly drawn, you know. They're like, I lost all my crayons, but this green one. (laughs) (laughs) I had to make do. Well, maybe the pictures were first and then the... And then the pearl poet uh, <laughs> was colorblind or something. <laughs> That's the theory. I like. I think you should you should go forward with that one. I quite. Yeah, I could see that working. <laughs> yeah, this is well, this is what being a scholar entails, right? Just making stuff up. Just making stuff up. <laughs> Saying stuff confidently, yeah. so you sound like uh, you know what you're doing, which has yeah. carried me a long way thus far. <laughs> they can analyze the pigments in manuscripts and kind of see how old they are and kind of see where they came from. And they analyzed the Gawain manuscript and they discovered that the ink used to copy the text was the same ink used to do the kind of underdrawings in the manuscript. So the same person who wrote the text did actually do the drawing, (gasps) which is quite cool, but also doesn't really solve our problems. Like we had this nice theory of like someone came along and did the pictures and they couldn't read and they just did these bad pictures. Isn't isn't it funny? And now we're like, why has this happened? Like what is this (laughs) weird kind of incongruous nature between the two? It's very, very interesting. It would be like if we didn't have Stephen to do all of our artwork. And we did it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But to me, you know, going is a poem full of weirdnesses and kind of things that don't quite marry or things that don't quite add up. So I kind of like the fact that even the manuscript that it survives to us in is itself kind of a mystery Mm -hmm. full of strangeness. It is so important to us as kind of readers of medieval literature. Gawain is the one that people know, you know, it's the poem. But because it only survives in one manuscript, that shows us that it was not much read you know, in the Middle Ages. Well, what I work on typically is stuff like Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, you know, I think survives in the most manuscripts of anything we have surviving, apart from maybe the Prick of Conscience. Mm -hmm. So it's like Mm 50-something manuscripts. And to have that number surviving shows us how much it was read. Whereas, you know, Gawain, just the one. So there is this kind of scholarly focus on it now, which is almost out of keeping with its importance in the Middle Ages. So if one of them, like, came forward in time... And we were saying like, oh man, like, have you heard of Gawain? It's so good. Like, we all love it. They would say, that? Are you serious? Nobody likes that. It's so small. (laughs) Have you heard of the Canterbury Tales? (laughs) Yeah, they would be like, oh, I know this other story about Gawain or, oh, that character in the Mort D'Arthur, but they would not know Gawain and the Green Knight. It's kind of an indie poem. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Like, I liked it before. It was. I have a technical question. So when they're copying manuscripts, how do they copy the illustrations? Do they just try to draw the illustrations? 
A good question. Um, well, I mean, they do them in like an underlayer of ink and then they kind of go over them uh, with okay. the pigments. So, but they do kind of draw them freehand. But you often see, I'm not such an expert on this, but you do often see in manuscripts kind of ruled lines. Oh. Places where people have sort of done the outlines and then gone back and sort of filled it in. Wow. I know that there are certain um, kind of exemplars later on when you get to printing where there are certain kind of blocks that get used again and again. Mm -hmm. And for illuminated letters as well, I think there are kind of model letters you can copy. But for a lot of manuscripts, I think people are kind of making it up, what they're going to (laughs) draw. So they're not necessarily copying anything. They're just kind of illustrating, I suppose. Are people still finding these manuscripts today or have all of them basically been discovered? Like they're no more hiding out in attics. We don't expect to find things kind of so in the 1930s they discovered this text called the book of marjorie kemp have you have any of you read it or heard about it i've heard the name but i because i took a medieval literature class in undergrad but i don't think we actually covered it it's kind of incredible uh she has these visions of jesus and kind of talks about him like he's her boyfriend and spends all her time weeping relatable absolutely she is such such vibes it's really interesting because she's a businesswoman then she kind of has these visions of christ and she goes on pilgrimage and uh, annoys everyone she goes on pilgrimage with by weeping all the time and they're like can you stop but that manuscript was discovered just kind of by chance by a scholar called Hope Emily Allen. Hmm. I think in a country house when people were looking for shuttlecocks to play badminton with. Like one does. As one does. So things are found. And for example, with the Mort d'Arthur by Mallory, they found a really important kind of version of that text in Winchester School. So things Mm -hmm. are occasionally discovered, but realistically speaking, we have a pretty good idea of what we have and kind of what there is available to us. Okay. I'm curious if there's ever been a case of someone making a fake manuscript. It's a really good question, and it's a question I would I was going to hope you were going to ask. Good job, Theo. <laughs> so what I work on is medievalism, so how people responded to and imitated the Middle Ages. And one thing I'm particularly interested in was this poet called Thomas Chatterton. Chatterton was this kind of self-taught genius, and he forged these poems, uh, which he said were by a Bristol monk called Thomas Rowley, and they're written in this absolutely incredible kind of cod Middle English that he sort of cobbled together from a, like a, a list of, um, like a word list of Middle English words. So often he'll kind of misunderstand a noun as a verb or something like that. And if you know anything about Middle English, you kind of look at these poems and you're like, this makes zero sense. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But he thought he was going to fool people for real? Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. It's really fascinating and really tragic. Um, He sent them to um, Walpole. Then he was like, no, these are not genuine. And Chatterton was kind of in despair. People don't know whether he took his own life or whether he kind of took an overdose, but he sort of ended his life and it was this great tragedy. And he was hailed by the romantics as this kind of brilliant boy and this kind of prescient poet. And the fact that he Uh. wrote these terrible faux medieval forgeries (laughs) kind of doesn't really seem to matter. Okay. And this was in what, the 1700s? Yeah, the late seven. Yeah. So uh, the 18th century. So late about 1780s, I think. It took a surprisingly long time for there to be a kind of definitive judgment about whether the poems were forgeries or not. I mean, 
kind of as a medievalist, you look at them and you're like, this is nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a lot of back and forth. And it wasn't until there was a scholar called Walter Skeet. He produced an edition of Chatterton's poems with a really horrible introduction, kind of being like, this is all the ways in which this is bad Middle English. These things are wrong. <laughs> but he published it and was like, here's the worst thing I've ever translated. A hundred percent. Oh, wow. <laughs> there's all these chatty little footnotes where he's like, this is not a word in Middle English. Uh, I think he means this. And you're like, just leave it alone, Skeet. It's fine. <laughs> God, Skeet's always ruining everything. <laughs> well, I mean, in many ways, yes. <laughs> it does sound entertaining to read, though. But I thoroughly recommend them. But it, it definitely yeah. goes back to what you were saying about wanting to find things. People want there to be more out there. People want to make discoveries. People want to believe. So even things which are obviously forgeries do get a lot of consideration and people are hopeful about them. And I can imagine that back then they didn't obviously have, you know, carbon dating and the chemistry techniques to be able to figure out, you know, that this was just created two days ago or something. So, but that's still pretty impressive that they were able to figure it out. But I know, um, you know, one of the things we were kind of wondering about from the Gawain poem is the chivalry, just the the very weird interactions that he has with the people around him. Because, I mean, is it as strange as it seems? Like, even within the context of medieval life, it still seems like you're saying it's a very abnormal way to behave. It's a good question. And one I think about a lot when I'm teaching the poem. Mm-hmm. So maybe tell me a bit more about the kind of abnormality, the strangenesses in the poem to do with chivalry that you kind of picked up on. When we were reading Gawain's interactions with, I guess, Lady Bertilac, she's flirting with him and he's like, I have to flirt with her, but I can't flirt too much. It would be rude to kiss her because, you know, I'm not really supposed to be kissing and she's married to my host, but also it's rude not to kiss her because she wants me to. (laughs) So I have this fine line I have to walk. And if I go too far to either side, I'm in trouble. So that's just so weird to us. (laughs) Yeah. Is that just a strange trait of Gawain or is that actually how a knight had to behave or what? Or is it how people romanticize the behaviors of knights? nights mm-hmm. in the future? <laughs> really good questions. And I think you summarized that oddness very well. <laughs> the problem is, when we talk about medieval chivalry, it's like using a term like courtly love. We use it all the time mm-hmm. and nobody 100% can be like, this is what it means. But basically, as a knight, Gawain has a responsibility to his host. And he kind of has a responsibility to uphold the terms of the covenant that they've agreed And he has a responsibility to be a good guest and not to sleep with Bertilak's wife. But as a knight too, he has an obligation to the lady to be courteous. And being courteous means kind of entertaining her advances, kind of going so far but not too far. Mm -hmm. And of course, the, the wonderful kind of crux of the poem is that with the whole exchange of winnings, one would think that if he slept with Lady Bertilac, he would then have to sleep with Lord Bertilac. Mm-hmm. That's sort of in the back of his mind, but it doesn't really affect <laughs> what he's doing. Do you think that is part of what keeps him in check? Like, oh, I could do that, but then I'd have to do that. Like, <laughs> It's a good question. It, it, oddly, because it's not something ver- made very obvious in the poem, it wasn't something I'd thought about for a long time or really noticed. And then I was just kind of walking one day and I was like, wait, (laughs) wait, you know, this changes everything. Um, And it's just fun to think about all of the different ways it could go wrong. And like, why did they set this game up? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Was the poet thinking about that? Or was he just like some little innocent who would never even imagine such a thing? I think 
he's definitely thinking about it. You know, the kind of queer subtext of Gawain is something that a lot of older scholars get kind of like, oh, but it's homosocial relationships, you know, men have kind of different relationships with each other. And it's like, that is true, but also... Yeah, I can twist myself into all kinds of knots to make it not gay. Like, we're going to do that forever. (laughs) But it's so obviously there on the page, you know, why not just see what's there? Mm Mm-hmm. The other side of it is that there's a very interesting kind of metatextuality to the poem, which is to do with the French tradition and the English tradition. So in the French mm-hmm. tradition, Gawain is kind of not a great knight. Lancelot is the best knight. And Gawain is kind of like a romancer. He's kind of the sexy knight. He's an <laughs> F-boy. <laughs> Jackie, you can say the real word. We're an explicit I don't know. Podcast. I just felt like we're talking to a professor. <laughs> Please don't be concerned for my sensibilities. You know, fuck was used in medieval times, wasn't it? It's a pretty old word. You know what? Fine. Gawain was a fuck boy. Let's just say it. Say it, Jackie. <laughs> I said it. I just said it. Oh, just once and no more. Just like Gawain with the kisses. <laughs> but that's what you're saying, right? Like, he's not taken as seriously. And one of the interesting things, you know, when he arrives at the castle is that it's almost like the people there have kind of read these romances and they're like, oh, Gawain is here. Like, oh, there's going to be some seducing happening. <laughs> but he shows up and he's totally just like screwing everything up. Like, <laughs> right, Absolutely. He shows up and he's like, I have this incredibly rigid code of chivalry, which I think might be worth coming back to. And everyone's like, okay, sexy Gawain now. We know what happens in the stories. So he's kind of fighting against the weight of almost literary tradition as well as kind of the challenge he's given, which is really Mm. interesting. So it's really only in the English tradition that Gawain is kind of like a good knight and an interesting knight. The noblest knight. You know, it's all about Lancelot in the French. Yeah. If I don't know if you've seen the movie, Lottie. It's not out here. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, I I don't think it is spoiling it to say that that depiction of Gawain is very much in the French tradition. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot tell you how much I'm looking forward to that film. (laughs) We could talk about that later for sure, but... (laughs) I don't know. Now that you're talking about it, I can kind of see, like, let's say I were invited to, like, the White House or something. No particular president in mind, I promise. But if the president is hitting on you or the president's wife or something, like, you can't just be like, fuck off. Like, you you have to kind of giggle and go along with it to an extent. Absolutely. It is exactly that. And it is that kind of almost uncomfortableness. Like, the lady has been described as almost kind of predatory in some readings, Because, you know, Gawain is kind of vulnerable and he is bound by this incredibly rigid code. You know, she's testing it. She's challenging it. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that very rigid code is that it has no give. So the minute it starts to slightly kind of slip, the whole thing collapses. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly rigid and it just shatters. So once you make one tiny mistake, you might as well just make all the mistakes. Kind of. (laughs) That's what he accuses himself of at the end of the poem, where, you know, everyone's like... he really was hard on himself. Right, everyone's like, Gawain, you made a little mistake, but you're fine. And Gawain is like, I am the worst knight known to humanity. Women are terrible. My life is over. The French were right about me. (laughs) The worst thing that could ever be true. (laughs) Would this poem have been written in a time where the idea of women's sexuality was that women were just extremely sexual and men kind of had to rein them in? Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I I wasn't, I know that it has flip-flopped a lot. (laughs) So is that the case? Because- 
me not knowing much about history, I usually just assume that most of the time women are assumed to just be passive objects. But you're saying in in this time period, it was much it was very much the opposite. It depends. Women are typically characterized as either kind of seducers. Depictions of the devil in the period often have him as a serpent with the head of a woman. Hmm. Or you have the opposite, which is kind of the very kind of chaste, virginal woman. You see it a lot in the Canterbury Tales. The virgin and the whore dichotomy. Exactly so, exactly so. And of course, there are characters who kind of trouble and question these uh, definitions and boundaries, like the wife of Bath, for example, in the Canterbury Tales. One of the interesting things about Lady Bertilac is that she does just seem like this seducer, like this kind of woman who is there to tempt But the end of the poem suggests that in some way she has her own agency, that she's not just testing Gawain because she's Bertilak's wife and he's told her to. Mm -hmm. There is this kind of female magic happening with Morgan Le Fay Mm -hmm. at the castle and um, it becomes more complex than just ladies bad tempting man. So it's (laughs) interesting that Gawain kind of panics. And then when his masculinity is kind of questioned, he's like, well, men have been tempted by women all the time since the beginning of time. So, you know, it's okay because I'm just another man tempted by a bad woman. Yeah. Just another in a long line. (laughs) Do you think he's also kind of explaining to himself, well, that's why I did this one thing with Lady Bertilac, but like now I've also got to explain why I kissed Lord Bertilac so many times. Like he's just got to really talk himself out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Hugely, hugely. So the thing with the biblical references, we talked about it a little bit in that episode, but I was saying that I didn't think all of those examples were good. Is the poet saying anything with that or is it just like, oh, I'm just throwing out some women? I know what you're talking about, but can you give a little summary for listeners who may not remember? I'll, I'll give a quick example. Samson and Delilah, that's a good example. She's tempting him to betray his people, cuts his hair off, whatever, and then he eventually gets his revenge. So that's a good example. David and Bathsheba is a terrible example because he spied on her taking a bath from afar and then unbeknownst to her, had her husband murdered and then married her. So that's not a very good example of a woman being dastardly. She shouldn't have bathed, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) You're exactly right. And it's not unintentional. We don't know very much about the Gawain poet, but our strong suspicion is that he had some connection to the clergy, particularly Mm -hmm. because, you know, he has these two much more didactic poems, uh, Cleanness and Patience. When he makes biblical references, he isn't just doing it for show or to make a list. He is exactly as you say, Rachel, making a point. So it's kind of showing the falseness and faultiness in Gawain's own reasoning. Mm. The sticking plaster over a wound that isn't quite the right shape. Yeah, that's fascinating because on its face, yeah, it just sort of seems like you would skip over it if you don't know better. Okay, well, that's nice. I'm glad to know that that was the poet purposefully making a characterization choice. (laughs) At least I I hope, I, I choose to believe that is the case. Certainly based on the evidence of the other poems, I would be surprised if there wasn't something intended by that. Mm -hmm. If we were going to circle back around to the chivalry question for just a bit, I know you're saying like it's it's more of like a vibe, not an actual thing where you can say this is what it is. But was that something people were actually trying to live by or is it more this is a nice literary device? We like to imagine the nobles, you know, 50 years ago doing this. It's a really good question. The answer is a bit of both. Mm. You see it codified in medieval literature in a way that people kind of didn't have a special book of chivalry. 
that they kind of would look up the rules in. Though there are kind of manuals of chivalry. There's one by a knight called uh, Jeff Wadashani, the book of the Knight mm-hmm. of the Tower, and he kind of has this list of things that he thinks a knight should be in kind of, I think it's 10 commandments. Oh, I love that idea. You know, God made some commandments. I bet I could do that too. Yeah, when you put things in tens, it just seems like you got to obey it. But it's pretty much the things you'd expect. So kind of protecting women, uh, fighting for what's right, being a a good Christian. So kind of upholding God. And of course, if you think about the context of the Crusades, that's kind of going to come into it. Okay. Now, another question is, Gawain uses his religion as a sort of shield against the lady's seduction. How uh, sexual were these people actually being? Because there seems to be like a weird tension where everyone else is like, who cares? Just have sex. It's great. And then he's the only one who's like, no, uh, uh, God doesn't want me to. Oh, yeah. That was my question because I think we had disagreed or or my understanding was that Gawain is not supposed to have sex. Like he's supposed to remain chaste. But then Rachel said she didn't think that was the case. Or I said, I don't think that that was his main concern. It's a really good question. My understanding is that for him, chastity is part of that pentangle of his chivalry. It is one mm. of those five facets of it. It's not the kind of the one thing that he's holding himself to, but if he lets it go, everything else falls apart. Mm-hmm. Okay. He is he's unusual, I think, to hold himself to chastity so highly. Mm-hmm. If you read like Mallory, you have this idea of sort of sexual love as being the thing that takes knights away from their sort of knightly mission and ultimately cause, mm-hmm. causes the fall of the round table. <laughs> it is kind of something which is aligned with virtue in these mm-hmm. kind of chivalric mm-hmm. values. But mm-hmm. Gawain is unusual in being so devout, so kind of committed to chastity. For a regular person then, I guess, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. Is that what it is? Interesting question. I think less of a deal. I mean, it depends what class you belong to. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if you're a young noble woman, absolutely, it's a big deal to be chaste. Sure. (laughs) If you're a a peasant woman, much less of a big deal. So it it (laughs) kind of depends where you come from, who you belong to. On the one hand, it's kind of one rule for men, one rule for women. But Mm -hmm. as I say, it's kind of his vision of knighthood yeah. the class difference makes sense because you've got to be like we we need 13 children to work here right now like you can't be chased right <laughs> I, i'm curious i mean i would imagine there's a lot more information about the nobility than there is about the peasant class right? exactly exactly there's an article actually because i teach uh shakespeare there's an article i really like called misogyny is everywhere Great title by <laughs> Phyllis Bracken. Um, and she, she, yeah, she, does, she talks about the fact that, you know, so many of the surviving accounts aren't accounts by women or are accounts of women who belong to a certain class. You know, so it's kind of educated women who could write. So Marjorie mm-hmm. Kemp, for example, is quite unusual in that she dictates her book. So it's unusual to have that kind of more lower class woman have an account of her. But what Racken says also in this essay, Misogyny is Everywhere, is that our view as scholars is itself misogynistic, that we then assume that women had no agency. You know, Elizabethan women were going to the theatre, did have jobs, kind of were taking apprenticeships, but we take this view of kind of cutting women out of their own history. Mm, It's a really great 
article. I I really enjoyed it. We'll put it in the notes for the episode. Yeah. I also really want to read Marjorie of Kent now. This just sounds fascinating. Yeah. Am I wrong? Is that not also what Joan of Arc thought? Like, didn't she think she was not maybe Jesus's boyfriend is not the way to put it. But is it close to that? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, There's this whole sort of genre, I suppose, of medieval visionary texts, Mm -hmm. which for a modern reader can feel almost uncomfortable because they are incredibly sexual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. (laughs) What what would you like to know? Uh, I know that I have read some excerpts of like things that these monks would write about like being so excited because the church is supposed to be the bride of Christ and they would just take that like quite literally I mean they 100% read quite sexual these fantasies of Jesus (laughs) so is it just that everyone was like yeah let's take this bride of Christ thing literally or are we reading into it things they wouldn't have or is it just they were so repressed that they just had to get it out somehow that's what i was thinking like is it just that they are we we want to write this stuff and if we just put jesus in there maybe it will be okay (laughs) (laughs) i like that like christ is authorizing presence yeah (laughs) Um, it's kind of all of them i think that for us there is a huge separation i mean i was raised kind of anglican so very repressed so a huge (laughs) separation between um sexuality and and kind of spirituality. Whereas, you know, in the Middle Ages, the church was so much a part of everyday life that you get these obscene pilgrim badges that people would buy uh, on the way to sites of pilgrimage where they're meant to be kind of of saints and sort of holy relics, but you get them and you get one. It's like a a pilgrim, but it's a massive penis or a massive Mm. vagina. (laughs) And people would just wear these and like go to holy shrines and be like, what is happening? I think in terms of the medieval mystics, There is a sense, particularly for women, that it's a way of kind of communing with God in a physical way through the body that is somehow permissive, particularly because Mm. women weren't allowed to take communion on their tongues. Mm. So take the wafer. So it becomes a way of kind of communing with the body of Christ through your own body, almost. Wait, how did they have to take the wafer? You mean just with their hand? Just and then with their hand. As, yeah. As okay, okay. So they put it in their nose. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Snort it. <laughs> yeah. Crush it up, get a straw. Yeah. They really did consider it kind of the body of Christ. So there was this... Mm-hmm you get a lot of almost kind of ecstatic, orgiastic descriptions mm-hmm. of taking the body of Christ into your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, yeah. it is it is this incredibly interesting, um, particularly female-oriented way of talking about Christ in a way that feels very alien to us. So Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich are the two kind of big mystical writers who really think kind of through their body and about Christ's body when they're thinking Mm. about their spirituality. Pretty cool stuff. Would recommend. (laughs) Very cool. Hey, everyone. We just wanted to take a quick little break in the middle of this great conversation to remind you that if you would like to support the podcast, we have two pretty easy ways to do it. The first, if you're able to, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate them. And every time we get one, we text each other about it very excitedly. And the other way, if you have a little bit of cash that you'd like to send our way, is on patreon.com slash fire the cannon. We have a lot of great perks and bonus episodes. We just sent out a bunch of stickers and bracelets <laughs> to certain patrons. So check those out and see if you're interested in any of those. 
All of the money goes to making our podcast better. All right, back to Lottie. I can ask a maybe more general question. You said your specialization is Victorian medievalism. So like a 19th century view of the medieval era, basically. I'm a musician, so I have some familiarity with the sort of misunderstandings that they had in the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century about medieval music. A lot of those misunderstandings come from the fact that we don't have audio recording until the 20th century. So you have no sense of how this music was performed. You just have the notation and some explanations or accounts. So I'm curious, what are the sort of misunderstandings that people were having in the 19th century about medieval literature and what would cause those misunderstandings? It's a really good question. And it's a question I'm trying to answer. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, that's like your whole area of study. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Explain your career to us. Also solve your entire thesis question right now. (laughs) So I think rather than misunderstandings, what I'm interested in is the way that, and I'm looking at this in the 18th century at the moment, the way that people use the medieval past to legitimize their present In the 19th century, um, Victorians using kind of Arthurianism, England's wonderful past, and a kind of appeal to a past that never was. And Mm -hmm. what I'm writing at the moment is uh, actually sort of 18th century. So um, 1735, Queen Caroline has this medieval cave called Merlin's Cave built with these waxworks. um, And the idea is that she's kind of legitimizing her claim to the throne by suggesting that the Hanoverian line actually is kind of descended from Arthur and I think less misunderstandings, more kind of uses that we don't use the medieval past in a way that is kind of sanitized or a way that is kind of unobjective, I suppose, but Mm -hmm. rather that we take particular parts of it for our own ends. And of course, you know, tragically, you see that now is a really important time for medievalists because of the co-opting of uh, the iconology and uh, language of the Crusades by the alt-right in America. So, you know, it just kind of goes on and on and on. And what in the 18th and 19th century seems kind of harmless, in inverted commas, nation building, you know, you see how it becomes this incredibly dangerous and powerful device, this idea that, oh, this was in history. Mm -hmm. Therefore, things like even um, the idea of uh, Hitler making uh, the Jews wear a star, that is something that actually was a medieval practice. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a kind of awful repetition that kind of goes on and on, people kind of reaching back. Sorry, this got very, very heavy, but... No, 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 that's really interesting. Because I think a lot of people, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, right? Like a lot of people are like, you know, what's the use of this? Like, why are you just looking at this old stuff? Right. But it's practical and important. And the longer ago something was created just by virtue of being old and having survived into this time period gives it this air of importance that it may not deserve or or that people will say that this has got to be right. This has got to be true. (laughs) You know, now more than ever, it's kind of important to be careful about what we are inheriting 
and why Mm -hmm. and yeah using the past for particular political and hateful ends borrowing this stuff wholesale ah i have a lot of feelings about it (laughs) i have seen on twitter i i follow like a few different historians and people interested in history but there are a lot of people who actually study rome (laughs) greece different norse mythology and i guess medieval british stuff who they are worried because there's a lot of far right racists <laughs> who borrow all of that iconography and even the idea of like an English racial purity. I think anyone who's actually studied the history of England could tell you, no, <laughs> there've constantly been other people coming here and like mixing and going elsewhere. And it's just a, a silly thing to try to cling to. Hugely. Yeah. It, it's one of the reasons that this is kind of important to medievalists at the moment is the co-opting of the term Anglo-Saxon, mm. which is, I think, you know, what you were talking about, the idea that people have used that to suggest that there was this homogenized racial past right. in England and in Europe. And medievalists now tend to try to use the term early medieval rather than Anglo-Saxon because it has kind of so many hateful associations that mm. it's kind of better not to use it, kind of better to use a, a more accurate and less loaded term. Right. Another thing I was... Do you have another question, Rachel? Oh, no. I, you go ahead and then I have like kind of a final topic so if it's related to this then you go ahead it's not it's kind of a a new topic but it's one that we had uh, briefly covered before that i wanted an expert opinion on um (laughs) so to the extent that that you might know about take a look at this rash (laughs) 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 yeah rachel and i have covered this rash usually i'm like yeah i'm a doctor you know i prescribed this so it's usually like (laughs) exactly a beer yeah yeah No, um, so we had talked about, I think Rachel mentioned this theory she had heard about that um, the sort of homosexual undercurrent or queer undercurrent of Gawain. Well, it's one of the most interesting things. And um, well, she was saying that some people think that the reason this was put in there was to make, who was it? Some some royal or other. Was it Richard? Yeah, there was like some king who was conjectured. There was some king was almost definitely gay. The theory that I read was that this may have been written to show people like, oh, look, uh, yeah, men can kiss and it's not a gay thing. Because <laughs> what a what a convoluted way to do it. Like, <laughs> I think it's a really interesting reading. I don't think people write poems necessarily to angle them at a particular monarch. I think that's quite mm. unusual. Okay. And then I'm writing a chapter about this at the moment where I'm trying to kind of make this work. But, you know, sometimes we, we want literature to be commenting on political um matters machinations and you know obviously Mm -hmm. it kind of some literature does Mm -hmm. in Gawain for me it's just another part of the texture of the poem yes it is homosocial Mm. but it is also that sense of well jeopardy is the wrong word but what you do will have repercussions Mm -hmm. if you are a knight who is true to your word and you sleep with the lady then you must sleep with the lord I think it's part of the kind of richness of the poem which isn't a very Mm -hmm. good answer but it's the only kind of way of reading it into the poem that I've ever really understood. Well, and I think most of the time the simplest answer is the right answer. And I think that's a much more simple explanation than someone was like, I really just want to defend Richard. Right. (laughs) So unless you have like a specific Gawain thing that you want to discuss some more, I was thinking that a fun way to kind of wrap up the conversation would be to talk about how (laughs) the medieval era is portrayed in pop culture. Mm. We can talk about maybe some good or bad representations if you would like to do that. Yeah. 
That sounds good to me. I, I really want you to watch the movie when it comes out, and then I want to pick your brain about it. So I won't do that now. But other, are there other like things that come to mind? I mean, the first thing I think of is The Princess Bride. Oh, man, I love The Princess Bride. <laughs> All right. What a film. They're, good list. We're putting it on the good list. Moving on. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Great film, terrible portrayal. <laughs> I also want to see, I know there's that series of miracle workers, which I thought was set in the Middle Ages. But they've got an Oregon Trail one now. I keep seeing the ad. <laughs> I just, Daniel Radcliffe is just living his best life. What a weird dude. <laughs> we talked about Monty Python and the Holy Grail when Jacob was on. <laughs> that. <laughs> that, that, that is a good one. That is, if you are interested in Arthurian literature yeah what a great yeah. movie and Jacob's point was like they they kind of actually did a weirdly good job like even some of the <laughs> the jokes ended up being based in reality is every British person steeped in this knowledge or did they have to I mean is it just kind of from birth you grow up and you're like oh yes can you get to- it, it, it yeah it's one of these things um well I, some of them didn't they didn't they do English at Cambridge or Oxford so some of them would have been taught the same stuff that I teach now yeah, <laughs> and that yeah. Jacob and I were taught together. So maybe that's oh. it's that particular kind of... Some of your future students could be the next Monty Pythons. Yeah. <laughs> You're responsible for that. So I read this little article, I don't know, maybe six months ago that someone wrote who I think is also a medieval scholar. I can't remember who it was. But they said that they really love the movie A Knight's Tale, which is famous for its anachronism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you feel about it? (laughs) I completely forgotten about A Knight's Tale. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's a brilliant movie. I mean, yeah, historically terrible, but who cares about that? (laughs) You know, Gladiator is an absolute disaster historically, but kind of a fun movie. Yeah. I think what this person said was so good was that whenever films try to score things to sound medieval, they're just faking it. Whereas this film is more like, no, we're going to do contemporary popular music, which they would have listened to, but their own version. And that jousting definitely to them would have been the same way that like a boxing match or like football (laughs) is now. So it was more like the vibes. Yeah. I think it uses anachronism really well and kind of deliberately rather than trying to be too authentic and just being, there will always be people like me being like, oh, well, I didn't wear that kind of shoe. Right. (laughs) And I think you have to divorce yourself from that. But uh, no, I really, really, I think it, it has, it has the vibe and I really do love the depiction of Chaucer by Paul Bettany. One of the things that makes me quite sad is that I do a lot of kind of open days and sort of access and I often give a talk about Chaucer and the kids often haven't seen A Knight's Tale now because they're really young. Mm-hmm. But they, I'm sure they'd love it. It's great. <laughs> but the pop music to them is going to sound like, oh, that was what they were listening to in the 1300s. <laughs> or an authentic, yeah, authentic yeah. film. Yeah. <laughs> I think it holds up very well. Potential <laughs> options on the list. Obviously, Monty Python. I think there's a Nick Cage film. Which is medi? Is it Year of the Witch? Medieval Treasure. I've always really wanted to teach a course which goes up to the present day with like depictions of the medieval world, and maybe mm-hmm. I'll get to do it someday. And I'll watch all these films. There's a very good novel by actually a fantasy and science fiction writer called Connie Willis called Doomsday Book, mm-hmm. which I really, really love. Um, and I think her the it's a kind of science fiction. So the idea is that it's Oxford University of the future, and they can send historians 
to different periods of time and this person ends up kind of in the middle of the Black Death. That, I think, is a really wonderful evocation of the period. Well, it's like a night's tale. It doesn't have to be historically correct to have the right sort of feeling. Mm -hmm. I would recommend that. But hopefully, maybe at some point, we'll get the Garwain film. (laughs) I keep seeing all these hot takes by American medievalists on my Twitter feed and like people being like, the ending explained. And I'm like, oh, but what's what needs explaining? Is it just the regular ending in the poem or does something else happen? I don't want to tell you, but I don't think there's anything to explain. I don't know. If you would like a an example of a bad medieval movie. So my boyfriend and I watch a lot of random movies or shows on Netflix. It is a Netflix take on a Hallmark movie and it's called The Night Before Christmas, obviously with a K. Have you seen it? No, I've heard about it and I haven't watched it. <laughs> it is so dumb. <laughs> but it's a a knight who meets an old crone and he has to come into the present day and find love. And that's the movie. <laughs> that sounds so wonderful. I mean, I, I'm not dating right now, but my friends who are dating say that it's really rough out there. Like, it's just hard to find people to date. And imagine if you had to do that, but also in the totally wrong time period. Like, you wouldn't know what you were doing. <laughs> that would be quite something. Although I like the idea of kind of instead of dating apps or, you know, plenty of fish, you just have a magical crone who sends you to the future. <laughs> right. But then you're totally on your own. It'd be worse to be sent to the future, I think, because we have no idea what the future holds than to be sent to the past. I would rather go to the future than the past. I know the past would be bad. The future could be okay. It'd be bad, but it'd be uh, easier to date. So if we're just talking about dating. I don't think there was dating. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be much harder. There isn't I think you just go out and say, like, (laughs) put a ring on it. Who wants to? Okay. I think you're wrong about that. (laughs) I think the problem was the past was so incredibly smelly that it would really kind of put your ideas about dating and romance just out of your head because you'd just be like... The future could be incredibly smelly too. I have no idea. It's the the devil I know versus the devil I don't. The only good is the present. It's the smelly devil I know. (laughs) That is something to think about. If you'd rather be sent into the future or the past to find love, (laughs) yeah, ask all your colleagues. (laughs) I absolutely will. What if you can go into the past and bring them back to the present? Who would you bring? Yeah, who would you take? <laughs> People yeah. often ask me this, and I always kind of think... Do they? They often af- ask you that? <laughs> they kind of often ask me, like, wouldn't it be great to, if you could go back to the Middle Ages? And kind of Chaucer was a really bad guy. Like, I have no interest in meeting him. Yeah. I, may, I, I kind of like things to be at a distance. <laughs> Maybe it's safer that way. So you haven't told us anything about your partner, so I'm going to assume that they're from the future. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to the past, but yeah. So... Oh, man. Who would you bring back, Rachel? To date or just to be hanging out here? No, to be like your lover. If it's just by looks, I can't say. Why not? (laughs) Well, just take this out, Theo. (laughs) If it's just by looks, it would be young Stalin. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. You can't take that out. (laughs) He hadn't done anything bad yet. (laughs) He just needed the right woman in his life. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, have you seen young Stalin? I'm serious. He looked great. You can leave it in. I don't care. I can get canceled for my hot Stalin take. I think I would have to say I'm going to go for Oscar Wilde. Mm. You, for To be your lover and you being a woman? Just based on looks alone. Jackie. But what about based on the fact that he's gay? You know this is very in keeping. <laughs> oh, with, you prefer yeah, that. This, <laughs> <laughs> I always say I read this biography of him when I was younger and I just felt 
he was just so awful to his wife that I always feel a little sad. It was a different time, but she just got very like, she she really got the short end of the stick. Yeah. yeah. He wasn't nice. He was very funny. <laughs> Look, how is it that I'm getting more pushback and Rachel picked Stalin? Oh, no, 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 no. I just didn't want to say anything on air. Stalin was a very kind husband. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to formally disaffiliate myself from this conversation. <laughs> okay. I'm just okay. talking looks. Just saying. Same, same. I'm not taking into account how gay they may or may not be. Hmm. I mean, there are a lot of people from the past where they had untimely deaths, like Jane Austen, where I'm like, I would love to bring you to the present, just get you patched up and then mm-hmm. send you on your way. Yeah. So that's probably what I'd do more so than trying to find a historical lover. But what if Jane Austen would have become a terrible dictator? I guess we'll never know. <laughs> I, yeah, we'll never know. I would swap Jane Austen and Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> Um, is there anything, Lottie, that you would like to say uh, in finishing up or anything that you, I know you're not like a, a public figure really, so I don't know if you want to plug anything, but. <laughs> you want to plug your thesis? <laughs> no, yeah. Definitely not. I'm using it as a laptop stand. <laughs> you have so many copies made and uh, a special bound copy and I have no use for them. So yeah. They well, just... you've got one use for it. <laughs> well, absolutely. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, yeah, I, I found that function for it. Think about how much money you've saved. You don't have to buy a laptop stand. All you had to do was go to grad school. <laughs> oh, but the cost, the terrible cost. <laughs> uh, no, I, I've had a wonderful time. Thank you. Oh, would you like me to read some Middle English? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Shall I read? I'll read you the beginning of Fit Four because I always really like that. Now near the new year and the nicht passes, the day drives to the dark as the drichten bearders, but wield away to us at the world awakened the router. Cloud is cast in cannily the colder to the earth, with near the north of the north of the knack of detainer. The snow snittered full snat that sniped the wielder, the werbelander window wapped through the here and drove Uchidala full of drifters full greater. And that's Middle English. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Jacob. <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, I had a little more practice. Um, but the great thing about Middle English as well is that it's almost a confidence trick in that obviously, you know, there are no native speakers. Uh, so we know how some of it's meant to sound by the way that words rhyme. But a lot of it is just sounding like you know what you're doing. But, you know, be bold. Practice reading Middle English aloud. It's fun and it's very rewarding. I would recommend it. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. We're so grateful to Lottie for joining us. And um, if you would like to give us any feedback about that episode or any others, um, preferably positive, but we'll take anything, go ahead and give us a review and or rating on Apple Podcasts. You can also um, message us at uh, firethecanonpodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram and Twitter are at firethecanonpod. Our Facebook group and discussion page are uh, firethecanonpodcast. I think that's everything in terms of contact information, right? Um, yeah. Instagram, Twitter. Instagram, Twitter. Got the Facebook, got the Gmail, got the Patreon. Patreon.com slash firethecanon. And as always, canon is spelled C-A-N. O-N. All right, everyone. That is the end of season one of the Fire the Cannon podcast. And I think Ooh. we finished off with a really great guest. We loved yeah. having her on and we would love to have her on again in the future, just like she every single phenomenal. other guest we've had somehow. We've been very lucky. I know. <laughs> thanks, thanks to Rachel for finding all of our guests, by the way. Oh, yeah. And thanks to Jacob for recommending this particular guest. 
Yeah. We will be beginning season two next week. We considered taking a week off, and then we just now talked ourselves out of it. Once you're in the grind, the grind just doesn't let you go. (laughs) Ball is life. (laughs) We have had a really fun time doing this podcast, I would say. Theo? Yeah. Okay. Blink twice (laughs) if you're okay. (laughs) He uh, he blinked twice, guys. He's okay. (laughs) We've had a really fun time doing this podcast together. And we really appreciate everyone who listens every week or even just checks in occasionally. In our wildest dreams, of course, we were bigger than Joe Rogan. But in our reasonable dreams, we weren't doing as well as we are now. So we've surpassed our most reasonable dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I never imagined this in my most reasonable dream. (laughs) Wouldn't you say? (laughs) Yeah. And again, uh, you personally, you listening right now, thank you so much for listening. And um, we're talking to you, Kelsey. Yeah. James. (laughs) Michael. Who are they? Uh, Just common names. Oh. Baxter. Philip, dude. You bastard. Is that what you said? (laughs) Baxter. Oh. (laughs) Caitlin. All right. So we will be discussing the first nine chapters of Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. So if you are ready to get in the mood for fall with a bit of English spookiness, join us. It's going to be a fun time. Nice. Traditionally, our sign off is to say goodbye to Theo's mom, who's our biggest fan. So we always say goodbye, Nell. But if you have a way for us to say goodbye in Middle English, Ooh, can you? We'd happily do that. Fairly well. Fairly well, Nell. Let's do that. Okay, ready, guys? Three, two, one. Fairly well, Nell. 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 That's so nice. <laughs> <laughs>